0: I want to begin today by talking about the nature of good and bad sequels. You see, I think that 99% of sequels are absolute trash. I think they're just bad movies, bad stories. They're just not usually very good. And I think there's a couple of common reasons why this is the case. You see, for example, I think one of the reasons is that it's an easy temptation to make a sequel that is just incredibly lazy. In many cases, the sequel comes about because the original was successful, right? So we see it. A lot of people pay money to see a movie, they buy a book, and then they go, we should just make more of that so people would give us more money. So what happens with the sequel? It has no original, originality whatsoever, does it? It's almost always just more of the same but bigger because it's just trying to repeat what made the first one successful. And I actually think Gremlins 2 is a perfect example of this. When Gremlins came out, it was a box office hit on a very small budget. It was a very simple film, kind of the horror genre, but mostly a comedy that was just wonderful in its simplicity. So they come around for Gremlins 2, and corporate America is like, well, what if we made it bigger and wackier with more kinds of Gremlins? And what you end up finding is a terrible, 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 terribly funny movie. (laughs) But it has no originality whatsoever. Again, more. Bigger. That's it. And thus, it fails as a sequel. This one breaks my heart. This is actually a movie I loved as a kid. I still do. Jurassic Park, right? I grew up with Jurassic Park. I love Jurassic Park. It's this wonderful film. And the fact that they use, like, animatronics and it's incredibly simple in its premise makes it excellent. I mean, it's literally going into the dinosaur world. And it was such a success that what do you think those studios did? Well, they said, what if we made Jurassic Park eight more times, but every time the dinosaurs got bigger and there were more of them? And by the end of this series, who has seen the same movie 37 times at this point? Am I right? Again, for me, these movies, they may be fun, they may be enjoyable, they may even be good for what they're trying to do, but they fail at being a sequel because they don't add anything new. They just repeat what's come before with more. What I would say is this. These sequels fail to be good sequels because they include what came before, but they fail to transcend it. They don't add depth. They don't add layers. They don't add new meaning. They just repeat the same thing. Now, other sequels fail for the entirely opposite reason, though. You see, I think a lot of sequels fail because they actually fail to include the original story, which seems like a paradox, it seems counterintuitive. How can you make a sequel that fails to include what came before it, but it's actually more common than you probably think? You see, a lot of movies struggle by taking the same characters, the same world, and then they get to the part where you actually have to tell a next part of the story and they don't know how. So, for example, writers will try to write a sequel to a movie or to a book and they don't really know how to connect what came before it to what they want to talk about. So what do they do? They just erase it. In these situations, the sequel ends up just excluding or getting rid of or ignoring key parts of what came before it because, quite frankly, they're just too lazy to figure out ways to connect it. And this is going to be my hot take for today, but I believe this is a central problem of the newest Star Wars film. You see, if, I won't spoil anything, but if you've seen this movie, you can tell that the makers and the writers did not particularly like the movie that came before it in the series. In fact, they disliked it so much that in some very, i us just say, not-so-subtle ways, they just erase the movie that came before it, because they're not interested in writing a sequel, they're interested in rewriting the previous movie the way that they wish it had gone. And really, they just want to tell the story that they want to tell, regardless of what came before it. And again, this movie can be fun. It might be good. I'll leave it to you guys to battle out on the internet, whether that's whatever. Not really interested in that conversation today. But I am of a firm belief that it is not a good sequel story. Because it may add new depth. It may add new twists. It may build a cool world but it doesn't build on the world that came before it. What I would say is this, in this case, this story may transcend the previous movie, but it utterly fails to include it, which means it utterly fails as a sequel. And for me, these bad sequels highlight what I believe makes a sequel story so hard to make, but also so great when someone gets it right. You see, I believe a great sequel finds a way to transcend and include the story that came before it. Great sequels include the characters, the world, the themes, the symbols, the narratives of its original tale, but then they find ways to transcend them. They add new layers of meaning. They add new insights, new depth, new power, new narrative that expands upon it and honestly makes it something more than a repeat ever could. It makes it something new. And I think that is powerful storytelling when done right. A great example of this is probably a book series that most of you have been waiting for me to talk about for like years at this point. Harry Potter, right? I know, I don't want to hear it. Uh, I got there. So Harry Potter, its first book is great in its own right. It's a kid's book. It's very uh, adventurous. It's very exciting. It's very much like a frolicking romp, I don't know, through wizard land. And that's good. It is good as this kid's book, but what makes this such a good series is that it avoids the temptation of lesser series to just repeat that over and over and over again until we stop buying it, which is what most series would do with a success like the first book. But Harry Potter doesn't do that. You see, what makes the sequels of the series so good is that each one adds layers and deeper themes each step of the way. All while staying true to the journey, the characters, the world. And with each one, we see them grapple with new, deeper themes. Things like hope, death, mortality. What is the meaning of life? How do we confront evil? What is love in the human condition? All growing throughout the course of the series in a way that doesn't feel unnatural, that doesn't feel out of left field, that feels like it's part of this ongoing story that's trying to be told. And I think that it means that by the end of it, you find a story that includes and transcends with each step of the way. And then that last book, you're like, oh my goodness, this children's book is talking about my humanity. (laughs) And that is incredibly hard to do. You see, the best sequels always include and transcend. I think of things like The Godfather 1 and 2. I think of things like Star Wars, A New Hope, and then Empire Strikes Back. The Lord of the Rings series, each one doesn't repeat the same stuff. It adds, it builds, and it invites you in deeper and deeper until you're excited to have gone on the journey along the way. And I bring this up because I think it sets the course for where we're going to go over the next few months as we head to Easter. You see, we are going to dive into this next series, God Part 2, where we're going to take a few months to go through the Gospel of Matthew, the first of four different biographical accounts of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. These gospel are good news stories about who Jesus is and why he matters. But here's the thing. We're gonna approach this gospel story of Jesus in a unique and different way. You see, it's implied in the title. I believe in you guys, so if there's a God part two, then there must be a God part one. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Trained you well. And if you were with us (laughs) here in the fall, you would know that this is a series that we did uh, last fall where we walked through the book of Exodus. It's this Old Testament book that captures the story of God's people coming into being in the world. It's a story where God frees his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. He takes them through the Red Sea. He liberates them, and he leads them to the promised land this place called Israel, where he reshapes them into a new kind of people in the world. And we, we just took some time to sit in this book because it's so important to understanding the Bible. We looked at the major themes, the major movements, the symbols, the narratives of the Exodus story, and slowly we began to realize that within this book, we find the entire biblical story playing out. We realize that somehow within this Exodus story, we see themes that form the backbone for the entire biblical story of God. In fact, we came to realize that you can hardly understand your Bible if you don't get the Exodus at the center of it. And now, we are going to move into part two of that story. You see, we are going to explore how the themes, movements, symbols, narratives of this Jesus story, this gospel story, is meant to be the perfect sequel to the Exodus story. We are going to approach the story of Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew with a new light, seeing it as one that includes, transcends, and even completes all that comes before it. A sequel story that announces a new chapter in the story of God defined by one crucial movement, a new Exodus taking place right here, right now, through Jesus. And all I can say is that this journey of discovering who Jesus is and why he came in light of a new exodus has, I can't exaggerate this, has redefined how I engage the Bible. It's redefined how I engage why Jesus matters. It's redefined how I find myself in God's story, the story of liberation, the story of freedom, the story of exodus. And y'all... I am just so excited to invite you to go on that journey with us. Does anyone want to find a new exodus in the gospel stories this spring? Sure, Sure, I like that. That's very, not hot nor cold, lukewarm. (laughs) Just as a disclaimer though, before we dive in, if you missed the God part one series in the fall, don't freak out. You're gonna be fine. I'm gonna make sure you can still follow along. Yeah, well, that's the next part. But if you are interested in catching up, if you're interested in maybe going through the series so you can have a little bit more of those light bulb moments as things overlap and things light up, I would just encourage you to get on our Vimeo site or get on our podcast and go back last fall, it's called God Part One, and catch up. But you don't have to, you'll be okay. Sound good? Sound good. So to begin, I want to start with where Matthew starts. I want to start with the first two chapters of his gospel, and it covers Jesus's origin stories. You see, the first two chapters essentially set the foundation for the sequel that he's inviting us into. And I have good news because his sequel starts with a bang. It starts with the most exciting thing you can imagine. It starts with a genealogy. So for those new to the Bible, a genealogy is essentially a family tree. It's just a list of names. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and on and on and on. For 18 verses, Matthew starts off his exciting Exodus story of Jesus, And we're enthralled, right? Take us into that kingdom. Now, it's just a list of names, right, that forms Jesus's family line. And Matthew begins, this is the genealogy of Jesus, and then starts with this guy Abraham, and then goes all the way to Jesus's parents. This is really exciting stuff, I know. And while it may seem incredibly dull, I want to plant an idea in your mind. You see, if Matthew was setting out to capture the entire life of Jesus in writing, the gospel would be a very, 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 very long book, wouldn't it? So anything in it has a choice behind it. He is including this for a reason. Matthew is not just trying to capture every detail you can remember about Jesus. He is trying to tell us a story that gets at who he is. And this genealogy at the start of it is a part of that. And with that in mind, what I would like you to think about is this. See, when you study this genealogy of Jesus, what you're going to realize quickly is that it retells the entire biblical story so far. This genealogy is meant to retell the Old Testament in short form. And I want to show you what I mean. You can put five minutes on the clock. I'm going to retell the entire Bible right here, right now. So the Old Testament begins with the creation account, right? God creates all things, and then he uniquely creates human beings in his image. What does that mean? It means that human beings were created to reflect their creator and how they exist in his creation. They work alongside him. They care for it. They care for each other. They live in perfect harmony as reflections of their creator father. How do human beings do at that? Pass or fail? Fail. Fail. They don't do too great. Someone said pass. I'll catch you up. They don't do too good. They reject this purpose. They decide to go their own way. They try to redetermine what it means to do good and evil, which is essentially this broken relationship between God, between each other, and between their creation. They start harming each other for power. They start using their creation for their own purposes. They separate themselves from God because they want to build their own kingdom. And the biblical story sets out from this moment with this word called sin. And sin is a scary church word, and we often always think of it as moral failure. But it's not necessarily just saying moral failure. See, what sin really means is to fail at a purpose, to fail at a goal. So in other words, human beings were created to reflect God in their creation, to live in union with each other, with the world, with their father, and they fall short because they reject that purpose. And what we see is that sin leads humanity just to make a mess of the place. Do I need to convince anyone of that? No. And the rest of the Old Testament is about God setting out to deal with this problem. Creation started good. It gets broken, and God sets out with a rescue mission for humanity and creation. The Old Testament story shows the story of God essentially first calling a small pocket of people and then through them, through renewing them, through returning them to their true humanity, their true purpose as image bearers of God, he begins to make them a conduit for bringing in all the other people of the world and eventually his whole creation. So... Who does he call first? He calls this guy Abraham, one family who he begins to transform and renew into that image bearer of God's status, Through how he's in relationship with them, through what he asks of them, through how he transforms them. And then Abraham's family is something that becomes a nation, the nation of Israel. God begins to work through this nation, a bigger group of humans, a bigger pocket of renewed humanity in the midst of creation, this conduit for his purposes in the world. How does Israel do at reflecting their creator to all the other peoples of the world? Pass or fail? Fail! Fail. You guys are picking it up. I like that. Israel falls short of this calling. They seek other gods, and ultimately they start coming into conflict with the empires that surround them, the people that they're supposed to be bringing in to what God's doing. They miss their purpose, and they end up picking a fight with an empire far bigger than themselves, the Babylonian Empire, who crushes them. And Israel is essentially taken into this thing called exile, which means they're taken from the promised land, the home that God gave them, into Babylon as slaves. And then the Old Testament just ends. It just ends in limbo. It's a story without a finish. Literally, we are following this rescue plan, and then boom, off the rails, and it stops. And we are left wondering, what's going to happen next? It's the ultimate. Cliffhanger ender, it just ends with God saying, one day I'm going to act decisively to complete this story I've been writing. Boom, that's it. And all of that story from Abraham to the exile is captured in this genealogy that Matthew uses to start his gospel story. This list of generations of God's people leading up to Jesus' birth, it is essentially the beginning of a Star Wars film. A long, long time ago in a galaxy far away, this happened, this happened, this happened. You're caught up with the story so far. So what is Matthew doing by starting his gospel in this way? He is retelling this unfinished story of God's rescue plan, and then he lays out a series of Jesus' origin stories, and he lets you decide what that means. In other words, what I think Matthew is doing is powerful. He is setting up the entire story of God culminating in this moment culminating in a true sequel to the story so far, the Old Testament story, one that includes, transcends, and completes all that's come before. And y'all bear with me, because I am about to geek out. The rest of this Sunday is gonna be like Nerd Mike 2000, because this is awesome. You see, this origin story of Jesus that follows this genealogy begins with something that we've come to know as the virgin birth in Christian tradition. All of you have probably heard about it around Christmas time. It begins in verse 18, right after this section ends. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So let's call a spade a spade. This is, quite frankly, a weird story, (laughs) right? There is a poor, unwed Jewish teenager who becomes pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And that's how God's rescue plan conclusion is going to start off. We'll touch on that another day. But it's weird, right? And I think a lot of us hear the virgin birth story, and we just assume that all it means is that, oh, my goodness, Jesus is such a miraculous guy. Like, he must be important because this has never happened before, so that's pretty cool. But I think when you basically shrink it into that, you actually miss the major point. You see, Matthew is doing something radical here, and it has to do with the language that we find in this verse. For there are tons of stories in the ancient Roman world, the ancient Greek world, about gods coming down and having sex with mortals, right? Stories about making a weird Hercules guy who's half God, half man. The language in this verse is not sexual. In fact, it's entirely different, and it's implying an entirely different story. See, the language in this verse is unique to only one other point in the Bible. It's the language of divine creation. So, there's something explosive happening here. Something that you might miss in the English. The word for genealogy and the word for birth in Greek in these sections are the same word. They are a word that you might recognize from English called Genesis. Bible trivia does anyone know another point in the Bible in which there is a Genesis and the Spirit of God creates life in a space that once lacked it? Oh, the first page of the Bible. So the very first book of the Bible is Genesis. In the very first verse, we find the story of God speaking into existence our entire universe where it once was empty. It begins in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth, everything. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the what? The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, this emptiness. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then God goes about speaking all life into reality from this point. So the biblical story begins with the scene of God's spirit, God's divine presence hovering over emptiness and speaking life into existence, creating and sustaining it in places where it would not exist otherwise. And now, here we are again, another moment in human history in which God acts to create life where it was not before. And if you were a first-century Jewish person who knew your Old Testament, a light turned on because Matthew is saying something radical here. Like the Old Testament story, the one that's been building up to this moment, this sequel begins with a Genesis story. But in this Genesis story, we may find the same kind of divine action taking place, but it's not creating the universe, it's creating a person, a baby in the womb of this poor, pregnant Jewish teenager. In other words, the uniqueness and the importance and the power of the creation account, the creation of our universe taking place in the singular moment, in the singular person. A new kind of humanity being created in the midst of the old humanity. A person who is both God and human, a person that we could say is God-made flesh, crashing into our creation right here, right now. And this new genesis is unique in another way, too. You see, it's also given a personal name and an identity, we read in verse 21, the angel says, Mary will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is fascinating. See, this new act of creation is not vague or abstract. It is personal. It is embodied. It is something with a name. It is a person, Jesus Emmanuel. And these two names begin to lay out what Matthew wants you to know about who this Jesus is. We start with the first one. If you never knew what Jesus' name meant, here we go. So we find Jesus, and in Hebrew, it is actually Yehoshua, which sounds a lot like Joshua, because that's where Joshua comes from. You're welcome. So Yehoshua, And then it's abbreviated into Yeshua. And then us as English people put a J and go, Jesus. Because our language is awful. But this name is fascinating. You see, it's incredibly unique. It is formed from two Hebrew words and roots. The first one is Yahweh, the divine name of God, which comes from the Exodus. Yahweh. And then the second one comes from the Hebrew word to save, Shua. Combine it. What does his name mean? Yahweh saves. What is he going to do? He's going to save his people from their sins. What is sin? It's the original problem that God sets out his story to begin rescuing his creation from. Apparently, Jesus is going to do something about that. And what is his identity? He is Emmanuel, or God with us. So, As Matthew points out, this fulfills one of those promises of the unfinished story of Israel, a promise from this guy in the Old Testament called Isaiah that God would one day send his king or his Messiah to complete his rescue and make right all things. So we have Jesus, Emmanuel, a new kind of human who will complete God's rescue. How? By truly being God with us. God, human united with us born into this reality through a poor pregnant teenager and y'all this is where it really blows open for me because having set out who jesus is and what he will do matthew turns to what this rescue is going to be about See, what he does is he points to one more Old Testament story that Matthew sees as central to who Jesus is. Matthew sees this story as something that Jesus is taking upon himself, reorienting, including, transcending, completing, one that Matthew believes when we truly understand it will set up what Jesus will do, what he is going to accomplish, and why he is the culmination of the biblical story. It has to do with the last half of his origin story. After Jesus' birth, the story moves quickly. It gets really action-packed. You probably read that part, skip the genealogy. So to summarize, Jesus is born in this town, Bethlehem, where he's acknowledged by these people called the Magi as the Messiah. It is this announcement of a new king of God's people that they've long waited for. He's arrived. But the problem is there's a current king of Israel, this bad dude named King Herod, who really likes power. And King Herod doesn't really like that there's a new king. So what does King Herod do? King Herod tries to kill all the babies in Bethlehem to try to catch Jesus before he can escape and threaten his throne. But we read that Joseph and Mary and Jesus are warned by an angel. They are led out of Herod's grasp by God, led out of Israel, out of the promised land, through the desert and to Egypt, where they rest safely until Herod dies. You may say, cool story, bro that's exciting, but I don't get your point. Well, again, if you're an old first century Jewish person who knows your Torah, who knows your Old Testament, you would have picked up on something immediately. Do we know... Another story from the Old Testament where God's people are oppressed by a power-hungry, murderous king who orders the execution of Jewish male babies in an attempt to suppress God's people, an attempt that ultimately culminates with God hearing his people's cries, rescuing his people from bondage, leading them through a desert to a land where he gives them rest and tries to reshape them for his purposes in the world. Oh, the Exodus story. This is the Exodus story, y'all the story that immediately follows which book in the Bible? Genesis, a Genesis and an Exodus taking place in Jesus's origin story. This is what Matthew sees as central to understanding who Jesus is, the central story of God's people, the story we went through in God part one, the Exodus story the story of God's people being enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh, this king who tries to kill the Hebrew babies to suppress God's people, to maintain his power, this king who is depicted as totally opposed to what God's trying to do to restore his world, the story of God hearing the cries of his people and their oppression and coming down to be with them and rescue them by his presence dwelling alongside them. The story of God confronting the evil Pharaoh, defeating him, liberating the oppressed people from their bondage. The story of God leading his people out of Egypt with his very presence amongst them through the Red Sea, through the desert, to the promised land, the land where God promises to take this small tribe of human beings and make them into his first community of renewed humanity. The first people that he will dwell with, teach, and reshape into a new kind of image bearers, a people that will be his conduit of healing, that will bring in the rest of the nations and restore his creation. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus' origin story culminates in him reenacting, reorienting, and living out the Exodus story, this time with Jesus Emmanuel at its center. This time with a new purpose, direction, and ending, because you might have missed this part. This is where it gets really cool, in my opinion. In the Old Testament Exodus story, the people of God experienced an exodus from the nations of the world, Egypt, to the promised land, the place where God dwells, where he intended to live with his people and reshape this small tribe into his rescue project that would bring rest to the nations. But in the new Exodus story of Jesus, there was a direction shift. I'm not sure if you caught it. This rescue movement of God found in his son and his king will do what the last one failed to do. Look at this. It takes God's Exodus rescue from the promised land to the nations. They go from Israel to Egypt. This is a true sequel. This is a story that includes, transcends, and completes God's ultimate purposes for the Exodus. This Exodus isn't just about defeating Pharaoh. It isn't just about getting a small tribe of people to the promised land. It's about defeating the original problem of the story, the thing that created the Pharaohs of our world in the first place, evil, sin, and it's trying to get the promised land, the place where God dwells to all the people. Now, this isn't an Exodus story about liberating a few. This is an Exodus story about God's liberation exploding outwards to the rest of creation. This is an Exodus story about God bringing the promised land to all the people. This announcement of Jesus is the announcement of a new Exodus taking place in a new kind of person, in a new kind of story Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. And I think now we can close by just piecing together this claim that's going to be at the heart of Matthew's gospel that we're going to unpack these next few months. You see, he is showing us the culmination of this unresolved rescue story of God, a sequel of new creation, God becoming human in our world, the divine and human united once more in a true image bearer of God who's going to show the rest of of the image bearers of God, the way to go by being along with them. This is a story of a new human whose name, Jesus, and Emmanuel tells us he will finally rescue what's gone wrong. That this God will rescue his creation one way, by entering into it to restore it. This is the story of a God who says, I will not sit by and leave humanity and my creation to rot. No, instead, I am going to rescue what is broken by coming alongside it, by tying myself fully to human beings and the human condition to restore us to what we were created to be true reflections of the Creator." This is a story about a God who chooses to deal with the brokenness of our world by lovingly entering into it to liberate and heal it and to show it the way. This is a God who rescues by fully and truly becoming one thing, Emmanuel, God with us here. (laughs) This is a new origin story. This is a new story that shows us Jesus' purpose, this purpose and this destiny that we will set out with for the rest of Matthew's gospel, a story that's only understandable when it's all said and done with one lens, a new exodus crashing into this reality right here, right now, a new exodus that truly and completely defeats what was wrong and sets the prisoners free, a new liberation that deals with bondage itself in the only way that God knows how, by entering into it to break us from it. A story of Exodus, liberation, and rescue. And that is a story that I think might change a little bit of how I see Jesus and how I see myself. Amen? Amen. Amen. So that's where we're going to go in our series, God, part two. This series, we're going to dive into this gospel. We're going to look at Jesus' teachings, his life, his death, his resurrection through the simple and profound invitation at the heart of it to be invited into the rescue story of God, the liberation of God, the new exodus of God. And again, all I can tell you is that for me, this journey of discovering Jesus' new exodus turned upside down, how I understood the Gospels, how I understood the Bible, how I understood myself living in a world in which I see a lot of suffering and a lot of need for liberation. I see in myself a lot of brokenness and a lot of need for new creation. This turned my understanding of Jesus upside down entirely. And I just want to invite you to go on that journey with us and see what it does. So I'm now going to invite the band up, and we're going to enter into a time of worship and reflection. And before um, they play, I just want to give you a couple questions to reflect on in this song and to maybe carry with you um, over the course of these next few months. <laughs> I want to start by saying, where might you need to hear that the story of Jesus is a story of new creation meeting you right here and right now. I know for me, there's a lot of things in my life that could be made new. And the invitation of the gospel is to believe that that is available because our God entered into this space for that very purpose. So where do you need to find newness in a new Genesis story of Jesus other people, I would ask this, where do you need to hear that the story of Jesus is the story of exodus and liberation? Where in your life, in this world, do you just see chains? And what does it tell you that Jesus' very first mission is to break those off of you and to set the prisoners free? Where do you need to find liberation? Where do you need to be a part of building liberation? And finally, where do do you need to hear that Jesus' number one identity is God with us? That no matter where you are in this world, He is with you. Right here, right now. So, let's go forward because the answer to those questions is exactly the answers that Jesus wants to give you in His story of a new Exodus, making you new right here and right now. Amen. Amen.